0: Well, we're still making our way through Genesis. We want to try and tackle 32 and 33. It's uh, not that much. It's really all one story there between the two. And one little uh, episode, if you will, in Jacob's travels. And So I'm going to go ahead and read through the whole bit, and then we'll come back and just look at it a little bit. Genesis 32, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, and he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Job says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. And then the messengers returned to Jacob and said, We came to your brother Esau, and he is also coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. And so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which was left will escape. And then Jacob said, O God, my father of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, and the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I have crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the, the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother, mothers with their children. For you said, I will surely treat you well, and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so he lodged there that same night, and took what came to his hand as a present For Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. And then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, and every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me, and put some distance between successive droves, And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you, and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. And so he commanded the second and the third and all those that followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and after I will see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present went over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and the eleven sons crossed over the ford of Jebok. And he took them over the brook and sent over what he had. And then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until breaking of day. And now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. that." And he said, well, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life was preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, The sun rose upon him, and he limped on his hip. And therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. And now Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming with him 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. And then he crossed over before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the women and their children, and he says, Who are these with you? And so he said, The children who God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near and, and their children and bowed down, and Leah also came near with her children. They bowed down, and afterward Joseph and Rachel came. Near and they bowed down, and then Esau said, "What do you mean by all this company which I met?" And he said, "Well, these are to find favor in the sight of my lord." But Esau said, "I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself." And Jacob said, "No, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you are pleased with me." Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And so he urged him and he took it. Well, then Esau said, Let's make our journey. Let's go, and I'll go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds and which are nursing are with me. And if men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. So please let my Lord go ahead before his servant. And I'll lead slowly at a pace, which the livestock that can go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord at Seir. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house, and he made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he brought the parcel of, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel, El Elohi Israel. And um, that's chapter 33. So, um, chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, Jacob, he's free from Laban. He traveled some 375 miles. If you guys want to put up the map just so we get a scope of the all the journeys that uh, Jacob did uh, going all the way up to Haran, and uh, I think that one, and then there's the other one that shows the whole bit, or is this the only one we get We'll see. Yeah, there you go. So you can see the journey now. When he left originally, and went all the way up the trail, and then it shows the trail coming back from way up there at Haran down to where it kind of takes a little jog, where his travel takes a little jog there. That's where he went. At 375 miles, I presume, it took weeks. Uh, if you recall, um, last week uh, or week before, we talked about Laban chasing him down halfway along, and It took him uh, seven days to to chase him down, and and um, Jacob had a three hour or three day head start, you know, before that. So, um, 375 miles with all these people, all these animals, and he camps. Then ends up camping in the mountains of Gilead. And if we do want to show the other other map now, then uh, you can see uh, up at Ramoth Gilead there where the little arrow is on the side, that's where he camps out. And he sees the angels of God, though, and he had uh, stopped at Gilead. Actually, Gilead is where he met Laban. Laban caught up to him there at at, uh, Gilead. He made it down to Mahanaim, and that is where he saw the angels of God, and uh, they met him there. He names the place Mahanaim, and the word means two camps. Now, he had his camp. He hadn't divided up his tribe or his companies into two yet, so he basically has calls it two camps, because he's camping with God. God is there camping with him. And uh, he saw these angels, and he saw this is the camp of God, so he names the place. I'm here, and God's here. Uh, two camps. He's not alone. He knows that God is with him. He remembers when heaven was opened up and he saw a. The ladder going up into heaven. He saw the Lord at the top, but he's, his presence at the top, but he saw the angels ascending and descending on this ladder, uh, back in Genesis 28:15. If you want to just go back two pages or three, to 28 verse 15, or I'll just kind of read through it, but what were the things that he promised him then, even before he went up to Laban some 20 years earlier? And um, if we look at verse 15, he says, uh, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And that was what the Lord said to him when he was at Bethel, and uh, he had seen you know, the camp of the Lord there, the place, and he built an altar where the angels had come and where he had put his head on a rock and slept and had that dream. And he promised him the land. He promised him the descendants. He uh, promised him uh, uh, innumerable descendants as the sand of the sea. And again, he promised the same promise to Abraham, Isaac, the seed, whom the families, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And God would be with him wherever he went, and he would never forsake him. And he says, flat out, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is what he says to Jacob. Now Isaac and Rebekah had sent Jacob to Laban's house for a wife so that he would not marry the Canaanite of the Canaanites around him. And, but he was also fleeing from Esau, right? Um, the last uh, scene in Jacob's life while he was uh, with uh, his, his family, was Esau promising to kill him. In fact, uh, his mom told him flat out, uh, your brother's not going to you know, be comforted until he kills you. And this is the last thing that he saw before he took off 20 years earlier. And uh, so he's fleeing. And if you want to, just to read the account, uh, Genesis 27, uh, just to kind of settle it in, is verses 41 through 45. And it says, so Esau hated Jacob, because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, flee to my brother Laban and Haran. And stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. Stay with him a few days? Yeah, it turned out to be a lot longer than that, didn't it? And um, so, uh, and they stayed with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you also both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life. Uh, because the daughters of Heth, in other words, Esau's wives that he had married. But, so, you know, Jacob knew. Um, you know, Until your brother's wrath turns away, until he forgets his hatred towards you, so he's returning to the land of his fathers and family. He wants to appease Esau for taking his birthright and taking Isaac's blessing from Esau. He had blessed Jacob, um, Isaac had. God had blessed Jacob, and he made a promise to him. Esau had promised to kill him, and so here he is. He's back. The Lord promised to be with him and return him, but he's also desiring to find favor with Esau. He's got to see what how this is going to work out. He's heading back into into the land where he's got to, you know, Indiana wants me. Lord, I can't go back there. You know, he's, he's going to... Uh, Uh, face his brother Esau, who as far as he knows, 20 years just made him harder and bitter and and worse off. And so he uh, is uh, going back and he wants to send gifts and presents to appease him. And so he tells Esau, his servants tell Esau, you know, our master Jacob has been blessed. God's blessed him. He's got a family. He's got many animals. And so he sends these messengers. But all they can tell Jacob when they return I mean, my goodness, why couldn't Esau give a little tell that he was doing a little better by all that uh, hatred? And uh, instead he just mounts up with 400 guys and starts running towards Jacob. And what do you expect? Jacob is scared. Coming with 400 men, this causes Jacob to, what it says, fear greatly. And all this was told by Rebekah. He remembers all the, the, what he would stole all the trickery, and um, he's fully aware of what he did to Isaac and what he did to Esau. And, you know, the question is, uh, what does he do? And the first thing he does do is pray. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. But first of all, um, he faces this, and he's going back. He's settling it in. He's got all the people going across. He's sending his presence I had to appease Esau, but how would we face those that have the power to destroy us? As in, as far as we know, they're coming in our direction, and intending to do so. How do we face that? The first time God ever talks about fear is in Genesis 15. If you want to go back there, a few chapters back. Genesis 15, chapter or uh, verse one. I'm just going to read one verse. God had made his covenant with Abraham. But what he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid for two reasons. Abram, I am your shield, and I am your exceedingly great reward. Now, I am your shield, I am your reward. You know, being, coming from the God of, you know, all things, uh, almighty God, creator of all things. Now, we have God ourselves, right, through Jesus Christ, and he is our great reward. God knows we have fears, just like Jacob, and but rather than tell us necessarily how to escape them, uh, you know, certainly he provides uh, an escape for, for temptations that we're never tempted beyond what we're able to bear. But he doesn't always... Give us an escape from the things we're afraid of what he what he does do is he tells us to remember who he is right you know i'm 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 uh what does he say? Do not be afraid, I am your shield, an exceedingly great reward. Just about every day we're going to have to remember these things because just about every day we're going to come up against something that we're afraid of. I mean, I don't watch a whole lot of news I check just to see how prophecy is coming together, but you know people that just are newsaholics and, and they have to see what's going on, it's fear. The politics of panic is one way some people put it. They just want everybody to be on edge, afraid of what's coming down the pike, you know, just because of the wars, the rumors of wars, um, and uh, so forth that we see going on. And, and just the news is intended to to scare you. They're coming for your wallet. They're coming for your kids. They're coming for your house. They're... You know, they're going to stop letting us meet together. There's all these things that everybody, you know, that's not what the Lord tells us to do. Not be afraid of all these things. Remember who he is. You know, he's our shield, and he's our great reward. Um, we got a bright future. So um, we know uh, that we have the Lord through Jesus, uh, but every, just about every day we need to remember these things. Um, if you would turn to First Samuel 45, what does it mean that he is our shield? And you know the best way to say that is to contrast it with what some people use as shields. I was just going to look at verse uh, 40, chapter 45 verse 17, but the, uh, is that the right verse? Chapter 17, verse 45, I wrote it wrong in my thing. Uh-oh, that's when it starts, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, the uh, the story is where, you know, the, the Israelites were came up against the Philistines. The Philistines were out in array, ready to have battle. And they line up, and they got this giant, 13 feet tall. Uh, you, the, you can read the story, you know the story, the description, you his spear is a, is a weaver's beam, so it's more like a, a, uh, you know, a beam instead of a broomstick or a spear that you'd toss like the most of the guys had. And here he is, and he's got an armor bearer in front of him who can carry his armor because he can't even carry all the heavy armor that he's got around him, a big giant. He's got the armor, he's got the sword, he's got the shield, he's got the helmet, and he's pretty well impenetrable. He can't defeat him. But what does David say in verse 45? Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. In other words, David's, you remember, he he took on Saul's armor. Saul says here, wear my armor. And Saul was a foot above everybody else in the land. And so It didn't fit David. It didn't even uh, you know, cause him more grief than it would protection. And so he cast all that off. So here's a guy out there. He's got a sling. He's got some stones. And he's just wearing his shepherd's clothes. Doesn't have any shield, but he does, doesn't he? His shield is the God of Israel. Psalm 3.3, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, and my glory, and the lifter of my head. Psalm 5.12, For thou, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor, and thou wilt compass him about as a shield. In Psalm 18.35, Thou hast given me my shield of thy salvation. Thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. In Psalm twenty eight seven, The Lord is my strength, my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoiceth, and my song And with my song, I will praise him. And that's just four examples of of, in the Psalms, where God is the shield of David and the shield of Israel. If you wanted to turn to, um, you know, remembering that He's our shield, God knows the hairs on our heads. Um, If you want to turn to Philippians four, and and it says in that context where it says, uh, you know, He knows the number of hair. It's the context of fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious about the things in life. Jesus is telling him, back in Matthew 10. Jesus overcame the world, and we're going to rise with him. And there is no fear in death now. Death has no power. It has no sting. We have eternal life. And in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, it says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it says the peace of God will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. There is a way to guard your hearts. And we can have real peace in our hearts. And he simply says, don't be anxious, but you know, give everything to the Lord in prayer. And that's what Jacob did. Now, he was very afraid. He was, uh, it says, um, feared greatly. Uh, Hebrews 13, and we actually talked, hit Hebrews 13 a couple weeks ago, but it just fits. You've got to go there when it, when it helps you understand the boldness that we have when there's no fear. Boldness to come before the Lord, boldness uh, to just be at peace instead of having the fear overcome us when things are coming our way. And so just 13 verses 5 and 6, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Well, why? Because he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have the Lord, right? He's Abraham's great reward. You know, why Why should we be, you know, discontent? Why should we be coveting around? We've got... You know, I, I like to say this. You hear it all the time. I'm sorry, but you know this earth, you know all the best, best, you know places on this earth. Whatever island you want to go to and sit on the beach, whatever mountain you want to look out and see the beauty of all of that, he calls this earth a tent, and you can picture just a little, you know, two-person pup tent on the ground. Now he's been working the last 2,000 years building us a mansion and he calls, you know, just put that little tent next to one of those big stone homes down by the river, and that's not even close to what it really is, to what he's been preparing for us. People wonder, what's heaven going to be like? What's the best place on earth? Millions upon millions of times better than that. And we can't imagine, that's why it says, neither has it, you know, any man seen, nor has it entered into the heart, those things which God has prepared for us. You know, a good place to start, you know, Give up on the covetousness and not being content with what you have. We got such a bright future, and uh, just to keep our eyes on that is, is a great way to just lose the anxiety and lose the fear and start being bold now. Because look at our future and what we have. First John four, uh, half a dozen pages to the right, verses twelve through nineteen. And, and back in Hebrews it even says, he is our helper when men threaten you know the context of that god's our helper first John four 12 through 19 is uh, you know John talking about truth and error, spirit of error, but he's also talking about knowing God through love and um The most important thing, you know, if there's any one of the disciples that talked about love more than anything else, it's John. You look at uh, the Gospel of John and his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And um, it says, verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. Now that's going to be part of our study tonight. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. He who abides in love, abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected or made mature among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because he is, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love. What's Jacob's concern? You know, he's afraid. He's forgetting that God was with him, the God of love. But then he prays and he reminds him, and um, so if someone says uh, they love God and hates his brother, oop, that's down too far. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not made, been made perfect in love or has not matured in love. We love him because he first loved us. And, you know, that's the first step in growing up and being mature in the Lord, is to keep your heart and mind set on the fact that he loves you first. And, you know, don't be trying to earn that love. You can't add anything to the cross. There's nothing you can do to contribute to what Jesus did for you. He did it all. We didn't have any righteousness of our own whatsoever. And that's that love. That's how much he loves us. And the first step in growing up in the Lord and growing up in love and growing back to love him is because we acknowledge how much he loves us. It takes away our fear. It begins to take away from us those anxieties and things, when we start to see how big He is, and just getting to know Him in the earliest beginnings of our walk with Him, we start to, we, we just can't deny how much He loves us. We start to see how beautiful creation is and start to think of what He's prepared for us. And uh, it's just a, an amazing, amazing thing to see fear fade away, anxieties fade away, because we're keeping our eyes on Him and uh, His love, you know, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things below. So then he says, though there's boldness. Isn't that interesting? Now here in Hebrews, and now here in John, this boldness that we have instead of fear. Now back in Genesis 32, let's look at that prayer a little bit. Verses 9, uh, nine through 12. Now Jacob said, Oh God, of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Remember when uh, Laban was swearing by his God? It was the God from way back in Ur of the Chaldees. No, this is the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, but also the God that spoke to Jacob, to him, and said, return to your country, return to your family, and I will deal well with you. Remember that. you know. It's like Jacob's reminding himself of what God promised him. He's praying to the Lord, saying, "Lord, you said to come, here I am. You said you'd deal well with me." But what? A, we'll look at verse 10. It says, "I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies." Not only that, he's not worthy of all the truth that he had uh, shown him, and, and his travel, and when he was with Laban, and, and uh, with you know, getting Rachel, getting Leah. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For he crossed over this Jordan, where he's about to cross over again, and he had a walking stick. That was it, nothing else. Now he's returning back and he's giving Esau all these, you know, you know dozens and dozens of, and even up hundreds of animals, uh, dozens from each kind. And that's just the present. That's just the gift he still has much more that he, of his own. These are just the things that, what, he's, what does he say, it, uh, it came to his hand. So he's out there in the evening and, and he's preparing this present and he goes out with, uh, with his hand and he's just gathering. Whatever animals were just the ones that were used to being comfortable and walking up to him. And he just takes those and sets them all aside and those are the ones that he's going to give as a present to his brother Esau. So really the best of what he had. And uh, because he, he still wanted to, um, you know, show, see if he could find favor with Esau. He didn't know yet that God had already changed his heart. He didn't know that Esau had already uh, forgotten, like uh, Rebecca says, go away for a few days, give Esau a chance. Well, 20 years gave him a big chance to forget all of his desire to kill him. Um, So Jacob was afraid. He divides all that he has into two companies. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, he prays in verse 11, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. And for you said, Lord, you said, I will surely treat you well. And I will make your descendants. Remember Abraham? Abraham was promised descendants. He's got one son who God recognizes, Isaac. Go sacrifice him on the mountain. Lifts up the knife and is about to take it, take it through because he had the faith that whatever it took, either another son or nobody, didn't even say another son, he said it's got to be Isaac, right? He's going to either have to raise him for the dead or something's going to have to happen. In fact, it really was, and we studied that, it really was a faith of Abraham that there was a resurrection, right? And uh, so that he would be able to raise Isaac if he had to. So he was ready to take him out. And here he's reminding, Jacob's reminding the Lord, you know, uh, you promised me descendants. And as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You know, again, God is our shield. God is our great reward. Perfect love casts out fear. And for us to remember that love allows us to truly cast out our cares upon him for he cares for us we can put everything in his hands because you know trust him with it because he's never going to let us go no more anxiety no more fear when we put everything in his hands and we look to the Lord and uh, you know who's perfect at that you know I know you guys are doing fine I'm not so good at that sometimes you know I'm not always the best at uh, at uh, laying things in the lord's hands i want to kind of fix it myself i want to kind of make it work i want to you know uh, build what i got to build so that i can get to the next level and do what i got to do to fix this or fix that you know and that's just one of those those natural things you know that comes to us a natural fear a natural anxiety and he's given us responsibilities not to worry over but to be responsible for raising families providing for, for wives and children. And uh, these are things that he's given us to do. It's a part of us. But never to fear what's coming our way because he is our shield and our great reward. But he's brought Jacob is brought to a place where he prays and calls on God. And he remembers what he promised. He's returning as God told him to. He knows he's not worthy of the least of God's mercy or the truth which God has shown him. He gives God the glory and the honor for everything that he has. He came across with a stick, but now he's coming back with all these, these uh, animals and, and possessions. And uh, he asks God for deliverance from Esau. And so he has fear, but he's doing what he's supposed to do with it. He's giving it to the Lord. He's putting it on, and to the Lord. And, but he's also kind of putting aside what he can to appease and so uh, possibly if what he is able to, to deal out here to Esau, he would find favor with Esau. So he's sending across this present, um, this gift of all these things. And, but he reminds God of his promise to give him descendants, too many to come. The same is true for us, right? God has promised to be with us. God has promised to keep us. Therefore, it says, with prayer and supplication, make known your deeds, or your needs and fears to God, and be anxious for nothing. That's what he says. Jacob was afraid, and his, you know, after all this time had passed, though, God had allowed Esau to forget his hatred, his vengeance, like Rebekah said he would. He did forget. God had taken that away, that threat, and Jacob didn't know it. And, you know, for us, a lot of times we see something that's coming at us like a, like a Mack truck, and we can't get out of the way. And we, we don't even know yet what's going to happen. We don't know. if You know, it's like the train on the tracks, and right at the last minute it goes sideways and it misses you. But it, we don't know that. And so we're, we pray. We're afraid and all. And we give it to the Lord. But all the while, for the last 20 years, the Lord's been dealing with this situation. He knows ahead of time what's going to happen. And he already has taken and made that provision. And here it is Esau. Not, it, not only is he not, you know, murderous and vengeful and hateful towards Jacob, he runs up to him and he kisses him and he blesses him and he's glad to see him. Um, you know, God goes before us, He's already provided all these things, the things we're, we're so afraid of. And all of a sudden it turns around and somehow it works out that it's more of a blessing than it ever was something we should have been afraid of. He knows our needs before we even ask. But Jacob is still Jacob, right? He still has the name Jacob, means surplanter. He did not forget what he did to Isaac and did to Esau. God knows him also. And God knows that he's going to be working the angles. He's going to be doing a workaround and trying to make deals to survive. He's still Jacob. He's sending a present. He's sending a gift. He's trying to find favor with Esau. And now he's returning, about to cross into the land of his fathers. And he goes through the flocks for a gift. He goes through his, whatever one's come to his hand. And then he sends the companies of one company with Leah and all hers and one company with Rachel and all hers. The children, the maids and all for each one of them. But he's still in wrestle mode. You know, he's still Jacob. He's still grabbing on to heels. He's still trying to finagle a deal. Everything is striving. Everything is conniving, supplanting tricks, grabbing the heels of others. It's how he got where he is, remember? How he, how he tricked the the goats to, to breed to be the stronger, healthier ones for him, and Laban got the weaker ones, and so he ended up uh, having the strength and the, the wealth that, had gone, that would have gone to Laban. But he had a rough life. He was on the run when he ran from Esau. He's working for the man. He's being deceived by Laban for 20 years for his possession or, and not having a single possession of his own until at the end when he made the deal uh, so that he could leave. And uh, so he's still under another man's roof, serving for another man's profit. Always a struggle. Always in the fray, out in the fields every day. But now he's about to cross over and join everybody else on the other side that he sent across uh, overnight. It's still nighttime. Don't know what time of night. Could be uh, midnight. Could be 9 p.m. And there's a lot of time yet. And here this man, and it says man, it doesn't say angel, it says man, Uh, starts to take him on and uh, gets into it with him, full-on wrestling. And it goes on all night. Now, maybe it was only from 5 a.m. till 6 a.m. I don't know, that's still a long time to wrestle. But it says all the way until dawn. And only Jacob, now, he would not quit. He's still grabbing on to heels. He's still grabbing on to this guy. He will not let him go. Until he says, "Bless me," you have to bless me. And the only thing um, still back on this, uh, you know, other side was Mahanaim up in the mountains, where the angels met him and he camped with God. Esau was down, you know, not even coming yet. He wasn't there. Laban's long turned around and went back home. Who is this man? Who is this guy? And it says, he's a man. Now, just for, for balance sake here, let's look at Hosea 12. Hosea 12, just 1 through 6. This is, gives the account. Now, in context of Hosea, the Lord is, is testifying against Israel. He continues to love him in chapter 11 and talks about how much he loves him and will we'll, you know, receive them back and, and, all, and draws them back to himself. But then he has a charge now against Ephraim. And talking to Ephraim, he says, um, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. And they make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. So they're going everywhere else but to the Lord. And the Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways according to his deeds, when he will recompense him, because he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him, and he found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name and the reason I read that is because the recount in Hosea by the Lord, speaking to the, the, the Ephraimites and the Judah, is that, no, he wrestled with an angel. The word there in Hosea for angel is malak. It means messenger, one who is sent. And it's used for angels in the Old Testament. The only thing, again, that's around there is the camp of God. Okay, but Jacob had called on God to deliver him. And he was still had his own plan to appease Esau. He wrestles with the man until the guy dislocates his hip. And he won't let off. And he's still hanging on, dragging him along because he can't walk on that hip. And he will not let go until he blesses him. Now, he knows this man is sent by God or he wouldn't have said that. And if not that even, why would he say that then the name, the place, Peniel, uh, afterwards? And what Peniel means is, he saw God face to face. Not a man, not an angel. He names the place what he saw, and he saw God face to face. It's, you know, he's, he saw the angels going up and down the ladder, He saw the angels that met him on the road. Uh, Abraham saw three men meet him. Remember, one was uh, Christophanes, the Lord. The other two are the angels that went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And when they got to Sodom and Gomorrah, they looked like men to everybody else. Uh, But he says that he saw a face, uh, God's face, face to face. And he does not say, Jacob doesn't say, angel when he describes it he says plainly it says this was a man that's the word ish and it does not say it was an angel malak like it does in hosea and yet jacob knows it's god he says he saw god face to face now if you wrestle with somebody all night long you're going to see his face you're going to know who this is you're going to be checking his eyes to see what his next move you're going to be is going to be you're you're wrestling you know and and it was a scrap And it was going on for a long period of time. He knew who he was looking at. And that's why he said he saw God face to face. To have a dialogue now about his name. You know, and he asked him his name. And he doesn't say, well, I'm the angel of the Lord. You know, "and, and I've been sent to, you know, at any time anybody ever asked an angel, well, they would tell him in scripture. But not this guy. This guy did not. He just says, well, why do you want to know my name? What do you ask me that for? Don't you know is kind of implied. He saw God face to face and lived. And we'll see more when we get into Moses and get into children of Israel going through the desert and the mountain that shook. You don't see God face to face and live because you're mortal. We're sinners. God's a holy God. You don't see Almighty God the Father and, and see his face and live. And like we read earlier in, in John, no one has ever seen God. But who has ever heard of what Jacob is calling God and also what Jacob called a God? Have you ever seen both God and man describing the same person? Yeah, right, our Lord Jesus. And so that's the, the idea is, I think it's clear from what Jacob says and what he calls the place and how God responds to him that this indeed was the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and what they call a Christophanes in the Old Testament. Um, now, he saw him face to face and lived, um, and yet, you know, John saw the Lord too. He saw God, he saw Jesus Christ. In First John, if you want to go way back there again, seeing Almighty God face to face. First John 1, 1-10 That was which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which ye have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard and declared to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. All these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message that you have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, well, he's going to be faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I always went for that whole chapter, but the first four verses is really what we're talking about tonight you know, first three verses, they saw God. They saw the eternal life that came, the word of God that came in Jesus. The only way to the Father is through the Son, because through his sacrifice in our place, we are made holy and acceptable to him. And we'll see the Father's face and fellowship and commune with him for eternity. Now heaven and earth are going to flee from his presence. All dominions will be thrown down at the glory of his coming. But we will have fellowship with Almighty God because we're, we're clean, we're pure in Jesus Christ. We're washed white as snow. We're holy. We're set apart in Him. And we have that same uh, relationship to Him as does His Son, Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus say to Jacob? Well, no longer are you going to be called Jacob. Now you're going to be called Israel. No more trickster, you know, conniver, struggler, wrestler. No more of that. Now, you hung on, you endured. It says you prevailed, but the word prevail means that he indeed was, had the strength and the will to just hang on, even though he was probably hanging on for dear life. It's not like he prevailed and beat the Lord and got him in headlock. That's not what he's saying. But he prevailed. You struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. To wrestle with God and prevail is that he would not let go until he got blessed. And you know, it's an example for us too. There's a lot of times it's really easy to just give up. And yet, all we got to do is hang on. We don't necessarily have to be conquerors of every situation and just being on top of every bit so that nothing ever bothers you. Sometimes all we got to do is just hang on. And it's all we can do is just hang on. And there then... And what does he say? You know, you get blessed for that. And uh, God did bless him already, all the blessings of the covenant and the promises to Abraham and Isaac. And God was with them and never leave him. But Jacob would not let go until he knew his name, until he says, you bless me. He wanted to know who the Lord is. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we we're talking about the difference between somebody who is religious and somebody who is, knows the Lord. Somebody who knows about the Lord as opposed to somebody who knows the Lord. And it's the difference between two Greek words, if it makes any sense to you. One is gnosis, gnosis, and the other is epigenosis. In other words, it's an experiential relationship with the Lord. And not just, you know, I know who Ronald Reagan was, but I never met him. We never played cards. I I didn't know him. I didn't have any experiential, you know, relationship with him whatever your example you want to use for anybody but you know everybody heard the name everybody knew of him knew about him and even knew what he said and knew what his his uh, uh, narrative was or what his his uh, uh, politics was I guess for lack of better anything but God was with him now he hung on until he blessed him and he even asked to know his name and we do find that same struggle A lot of believers, even before we were born again, the Holy Spirit strives with us to draw us to Jesus Christ. Sometimes making things, our lives, things we desire in our lives, um, difficult even to the point of maybe putting our hip out of joint, figuratively speaking. In order to get us to that point where we just want to know him and to find out. That, that's all we want is to just know him. Can't wrestle anymore. We don't get to have it our way anymore. We just want to know who you are, Lord, so we can trust you and give you our lives. That's the example we see with Jacob. Um, you know, we wrestle with um, surrendering to God's will, and we wrestle with that probably until he comes for us. There's always something that, you know, he's Lord, and we wake up every morning, and we're on the altar, and we, like Paul says, we got to, drag ourselves over and pick up the cross and and, uh, remember that he's our Lord and he's on the throne of our heart, not ourselves. And I didn't think it would take me this long. We're going to be a little bit longer, but um, Ephesians 6, uh, 10 through 18, um, a lot of times we wrestle with people or organizations that we count even as enemies because of the persecution that they heap on us, or just the difficulty they cause us, whether they know we're believers or not, we wrestle with life, a fallen world. We wrestle with uh, a, and struggle with with all you know things that cause difficulty. But you know, Jesus said to love your enemies, right, and pray for them. The thing is, they're not really the enemy, right? If you look at Ephesians six. through it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in uh, the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Then stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all. Take the shield of faith with which you were able to quench all the fiery darts of the wickedness. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with, always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so uh, if you want, while we're talking here, turn to 2 Corinthians ten four to 6 It says, gird your waist with truth. Well, your belt, all right, that's what holds all your tools. That's what holds all your weapons. Uh, truth is what keeps all the weapons handy and can, can defeat the lies of Satan, starting at the Garden of Eden and every deception that he has spewed out on every form of media since then to this very day. And it keeps your pants up so you can stand and fight. Nobody is going to believe you if you're not ready to stand on the truth with your own life. Stand, therefore, and don't let the truth about anything fall down around your ankles so you can get tripped up by it Uh, The breastplate covers your vitals, protects your heart. You have no righteousness of our own, and even our hearts can deceive us, but he is greater than our hearts. And uh, we put on his armor and cover our vitals and his righteousness, not our own. The gospel of peace on our feet, so as we walk in the world, we bring good news to men and women, share the opportunity for them to have peace with God through Jesus Christ the peace of God in their lives, like we saw in Philippians 4, faith to shield us and quench the fiery darts from Satan with his lies and deceptions and accusations and condemnations. Like Jacob, we have God's ultimate blessing in Jesus Christ and eternal life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the accuser of the brethren, what's his main goal? Is just to get us to forget that. He just wants us to forget that by any means possible to have, have us forget that nothing can separate us from God, either with accusations or with whatever, uh, condemnations and, and guilt trips that are not conviction from the Holy Spirit, but nothing more than guilt trips. Now he says the helmet of salvation. What does that do? Well, that covers our head. What's in our head? Our mind, our thoughts. He has given us a sound mind. Now if you turn to 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 10, Four through six, it says, um, "For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Well, what's a strong down? Stronghold, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled." It's important for us to take thoughts captive. And it really, it's obedience to do so. I mean, I'm, I'm a daydreamer. I grew up the youngest of six. I was five years younger than my sister who was up there. And so by the time I'm, you know, and this is up in Algoma, out in a country church my dad was a preacher at. And I spent my whole youth wandering around the black ash swamp down across the road. And just, that's all I did all summer long. Daydreaming, just walking around the woods. I didn't have any interaction really with much of anybody for, you know, when you're that far out of the town and you're the preacher's kid, nobody really wants to come hang out with you because you're a preacher's kid. You know, it's what he, so anyways, that led to other things. Enough said, I have a problem with anything more than anything is daydreaming and finding myself off in la-la land, you know, for, I'm sure, nobody else has this problem, I'm sure you can't relate, but it's, it can be a problem. Well, take these thoughts captive, because sooner or later, if you're daydreaming, there's no control. You're just letting it go from one to the next, and one to the next. And our flesh is going to come into the things of the flesh. It's only a matter of time. Taking thoughts captive is a discipline, and it's an obedience, and um, it's something I have to do, and I don't always. And so, um, and then, so he says, it's important to take those thoughts captive. Now what are these strongholds and arguments he's talking about? And he's talking about it, it's in the thought realm, right? When you hear, see, or or you know, find something that puts itself above God's word, or it tries to bring God's word into question or into doubt or into contradiction. And you hear it all the time, right? Things that, that you well gee, I don't get this verse. You know, there's a there's a little bit of wisdom that took me a while to kind of grab onto that's so important. There are, there are things that are difficult to understand in scriptures. That's just the way that it is. There's going to be things in there that are just not our ways. They're not part of our normal thinking. They're just difficult to understand. Instead of trying to jam an explanation on top of it with using man's wisdom and even if you've got a whole denomination of guys who agree on it, why not just say, I don't know, we'll get back to it someday. The Lord might bring it up to us. And until then, now if people have questions about it, you might have to say, I don't know. And that's some, it's hard sometimes. We want to have answers for people, and, but they want to ask something that, that we just maybe don't have the answer to, and sometimes you just have to say, I don't know. Don't be proud you know, that you can't answer every single question. It's even better for some people to go and realize, well, I get to look for myself now. You know, I get to go on the hunt and start looking through scriptures to see what this might mean. And and so don't ever be afraid to say, you know, certainly we should know the scriptures. We should know the main doctrines of the Bible and be able to share the gospel and, and without compromise with people. And uh, be able to discern some of those twists that people try and lay over scriptures like he's talking about. Things that would maybe bring question or bring doubt or bring contradiction. You know, and we need to take those thoughts captive. And they become, in a lot of people's minds, strongholds of, of uh, contention. Strongholds of maybe a little sin they want to continue to get away with because it's not real clear what the scripture says. We need to just kind of, maybe it's okay, or this or that. Well, that becomes a stronghold. And sooner or later it leads to one other thing, and then out of the abundance of your heart, there goes your life. Your, uh, your mouth speaks, sometimes it's not good. And sometimes your life is, uh, you know, finding itself going down a path that, that uh, if, if only you would have waited maybe, if only you would have maybe not allowed that stronghold to get going. So he says, learn how to be strong in your mind, to take thoughts captive and all. So that's, you know, the helmet of salvation covers our head. So what is able to pull down these strongholds in Ephesians 6? the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It is the final authority, just like a sword that can put something to death, just like the soldiers that that this picture is pictured after. These are Roman soldiers. You do not mess with them because they have the sword and they got numbers and they will take you out. And that's the authority that it has. That's the authority that the Word of God has. And let it have that authority. Let it be the final word in you know, things that you're talking about and thinking about. The Bible says it divides the soul from the spirit. You know, who can do that? The things of God from the things of the world. You know, that's what the Word of God will do. And then Paul, the final thing in that chapter in Ephesians, brings up prayer. And like Jacob, we come to God because he calls us out of the slavery to the Labans that he was slave to and, and out of the world that, and you know, we know we're not worthy of the least of God's blessings and mercies, nor are we worthy even to know the truth, Jacob says. Isn't that something? I'm not even worthy of the truth of all that you've done for me. He, can't, he just can't uh, take to himself what God had done to him and all that he saw God do for him, the truth that God had brought. And um, we're just not worthy. And yet he has blessed us like Jacob He's given us a great company. You know, all the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ is ours. We share in that inheritance with him. And how is it that, uh, you know, we would want to let anything uh, cause us to be anxious? You know, we trust in God. God promised to treat us well, provide for us and protect us, raise us up at that last day. And he said to any who would put their trust in him that they would be sealed by the Holy Spirit. Boy, the greatest gift, the greatest possession, uh, the greatest mercy, that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit till he comes and we're kept in his hands. And he says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. I need to hear that every day. Jacob holds on until God blesses him. And now God names him Israel. And then he crosses over the Jabbok River to Penuel, limping along with the obvious reminder for all of us to see that he wrestled with God to the point they put it in the law we're not going to eat that particular chunk of meat off the animals that where the hip socket was to this day because that is Jacob he is our forefather and uh, you know God is his great reward God is his shield now Jacob could go back in confidence. Remember we talked about the boldness that comes when anxiety and fear is gone because you're trusting the Lord. So now Jacob can go back, cross the river in confidence that he also had God as his great reward. Not with arrogance, okay? And not to be confused. If You can be confident in the Lord. But that doesn't, you know, don't let it come off as arrogance. Don't ever let it come off as haughty or high-minded, towards anybody be gracious and merciful and and gentle with all Bible says you know using words to win people with kindness it's the kindness of the Lord that draws people to repentance but he doesn't you know he's not arrogant in fact he calls Esau Lord and he calls himself Esau's servant he doesn't have this all of a sudden God's with me I can handle Esau we'll take him out let's go it's not like that at all no arrogance you know he crosses over the river limping along and he just still desires peace and he knows he's not worthy of this God who is so gracious and merciful and forgiving and he just desires peace he just wants to get back to where the Lord's taking him and let Esau be dealt with so there's no more looking over his shoulder no more concern about it and so we read through chapter 33 we get to the end and he meets Esau, and Esau is just, you know, no, no, you're my brother. Let me help you. No, I don't want all your stuff. We'll take it anyway. You know how it is sometimes, you know, please let, take it. No, I don't want to take it. Well, he just insists to the point where Jacob does not want to owe anybody anything anymore. He doesn't want to look over his shoulder for anything anymore. He wants Esau to be completely satisfied, completely appeased. And so that he can dwell across the Jordan Valley from Mount Seir and look over there and see it and not think of any threat that's ever going to be coming towards him. Now, that will change down through the generations because um, the Edomites are indeed Mount Seir and the descendants of Esau. And through the rest of Scripture, you'll see how that goes. But then it gets to the end, and um, Jacob then. Builds an altar. He, he builds a house and sets up in Sukkoth, and he then ends up going up to Shechem, buys some land so that he could build a ho- an altar. Not to build a house there in Shechem. That one in Sukkoth was temporary. Some booths for the animals and all to try and get things settled in and then travel up to Shechem. And um, so what does he buy there? He buys a piece of land so that he can put an altar to the Lord. And he calls it El Elohi Israel. And what that means is, to the God of Israel, this altar is, this place is. Jacob has a new name, though he will still be called Jacob, but his posterity is Israel. The land that they return to will be the land of Israel. And uh, when they come back out of Egypt, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that same God of Israel, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. Now, we also, like that, can come boldly before the throne of God through Jesus. Um, when the disciples wanted to see God, remember what Jesus says? They said, Show us the Father. Remember what he said? He says, I, I am he. he. I and He are one. You see me, you've seen the Father. I and He are one. And, you know, we can come boldly because we've seen Him, and He's the one who died on the cross for us. Now, we believe the testimony of the apostles and the disciples who walked with and handled and saw and felt and touched the word of God, the Son of God. They saw God face to face, you know, and they lived. In fact, because he died for our sins, we all will live. Jesus said to Thomas, You and I are more blessed because we never saw any of that, and yet we believed. Because the Holy Spirit's worked in our lives. You know, more blessed because we have not seen and yet believed. Thomas, what did he have to do? Well, he had, Lord, I got to see. Show me your hands. I got it. And he's, yeah, here, we're looking. Put your finger in my side. Yeah, I'm the one. I rose from the dead. And more blessed, though, are you and I because we believe by faith. Holy Spirit working in our lives. Here we are believing, and we will see. You know, men have seen the face of God and lived. Uh, But it seems by what he's saying to Thomas that we have something even greater. Because when the time comes and we get to see the Lord, it's going to be something even greater in store for us. For we will see Almighty God face to face when we rise from the dead to be with him forever. Death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Defeated. Defeated by our risen Savior. And someday we'll see the face of God. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much. And we just want to always be ready to enter into worship and praise and, and just even in our hearts, just even to just acknowledge you and, and meet you uh, at any time of the day and realize that uh, we can pray without ceasing simply because we're willing to at any time. And, uh, We just pray that you continue to show us how much you love us, remind us, and let us continue to bear fruit in the things that you've given us to do. So thank you for your word, and thank you for your love, and, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.